Greetings, and welcome to Research on Religion, a weekly podcast series devoted to the social scientific study of religion. I'm Anthony Gill, your host, professor of political science at the University of Washington, and distinguished senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, the gracious sponsor of our podcast. We encourage you to visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org to post comments, ask questions, access additional material related to today's program, and to find out what is happening at the Institute. All right, let's begin. We continue today with our Protestant Reformation series celebrating the 500th anniversary of the beginning of that event with an examination of Martin Luther's 95 Theses and specifically the themes of liberty and authority contained therein. It was the nailing of those nearly 100 points of debate to the door of the cathedral church in Wittenberg that got Protestantism rolling, after all, so any historical reflection on the Reformation will have to include a discussion of them. To help with that task, I am joined today by Professor Emily Fisher-Gray, an Associate Professor of History at Norwich University in scenic Northfield, Vermont. Dr. Gray received her doctorate at the University of Pennsylvania in 2004 after having completed a bachelor's degree in history over at Utah State University. She specializes in the history of the early Reformation and has written articles on confessional competition in the 16th century and parish life in Lutheran churches. In 2015, she earned the Homer L. Dodge Award for Teaching Excellence at Norwich University. For our present purposes, Emily was the principal organizer for a weekend colloquium entitled Liberty and Authority in Luther's 95 Theses, sponsored by the Liberty Fund. We will link to our previous podcast in the Protestant Reformation series, as well as Professor Gray's biography and an online copy of the 95 Theses themselves over at our website. So please visit us, get educated so that you can impress all your friends with your Reformation knowledge on October 31st. Emily, welcome to Research on Religion, and happy Reformation Year. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Being a Reformation specialist, do you have any plans to celebrate the the nailing on Halloween or anything like that? (laughs) Well, I've been celebrating for years, actually, as uh, as this anniversary has been coming up. So honestly, on the the 1st of November, I'll probably just be relieved um, (laughs) to have it done. But I've got to start us off as a historian. I've got to correct the historical record. We think, actually, he probably didn't nail them to the door. Oh. Um, So Luther was known for big dramatic gestures, so it certainly would be in keeping with uh, with what he liked to do, but he actually never told us he nailed them to the door. And no one else contemporary ever mentioned it. It was only after his death that someone came up with the grand story. Either way, he disseminated the theses on um, on the 31st of October, and yeah, the world has never been quite the same since. You know, we have all those paintings of him nailing the, the things up to the door. and I know. Uh, I, you know what? That's, it's so fun being a historian, but sometimes you, you find out that the stories aren't quite as good as you think. <sighs> sometimes mm. they're even better, though. So. Yeah. I guess it goes both ways. I, I have a question, too. Um, since you've been celebrating the, the Reformation for, for many, many years and studying it and all that kind of stuff, uh, are there any plans out there in Germany, specifically in Wittenberg or elsewhere, to celebrate Luther's historic moment? You know, there are. Um, and it's so fascinating how they've really had to think about how to celebrate the 95 Theses. The, Germany is a complicated place these days. Um, very diverse, multi-ethnic place. It's not a particularly religious place, especially in the East, where Wittenberg is located. 
um, I think something like 20% of the German population are either immigrants or first-generation um, new Germans. So that makes things just a little bit more complicated. I actually was able to have a chat with Dr. Margot Kaseman, who was, um, she's leading the 500th anniversary activities for the Evangelical Church of Germany. Uh, and she's, she talked about, you know, some of the challenges. You know, how do we think about, um, you know, healing this breach with Catholicism? You know, how do we engage with a dialogue with, with non-Christians in Germany and yet celebrate this very divisive, event. Um, and so they're doing a whole variety of, of things that are, that are really interesting. Uh, she pointed out, and I, I think she's right, there's a certain universalism to the idea of resistance to unjust authority. I mean, that's something that everybody, no matter what your background, religious or not, Christian or not, everyone can get behind. So that's kind of been the theme, is thinking about that. And actually, my favorite thing that they're doing, I just love this, they're doing all kinds of things, but they actually have a Reformation bus that's just driving around Europe. Oh. And uh, stopping in various places and asking people what they think needs to be reformed, and actually <laughs> collecting theses, which will be posted in Wittenberg this year. <laughs> so, if you're visiting Wittenberg, you can see the theses from 2017 and figuring out what it is that needs to be reformed in the world that we live in. I thought that was great. Oh, is this thing painted up like the Partridge Family Bus or Ken Kesey's uh, you know, famous <laughs> I, psychedelic one? Or maybe I haven't actually seen it, although I have to admit there was part of me that just wanted to follow the Reformation Bus because I thought that would be such a riot. Oh, I know. Um, so I don't know exactly what the Reformation Bus looks like, although I, I, I'm intrigued to see what it is that they came up with. I'm actually, uh, since I'm teaching the Reformation this fall, thinking, you know, I should do a Reformation bus. I should just drive around campus and, you know, ask the students what they think needs to be reformed. I think that'd be interesting. You, you should get an RV and just travel the country. That would be more I cool. Should. So that would be, I, I am absolutely fascinated what this Reformation bus is. So I'm going to do a little Isn't bit of research <laughs> and see if I can find a picture of it. And if we can find a picture of it, we'll put it up on our Facebook page or that up on the great. website. So I'm, I'm thinking it looks like the Who's Magic bus or something like that. It'd be very cool. <laughs> I think it has a big picture of Luther's face on the side. Yeah. So you just mentioned uh, driving a bus around campus at uh, Norwich University, and I have to start off by noting that I thought I was pretty knowledgeable about every college in the United States. I, I was a book review editor for over a decade, and I had to scour every university in, on the planet to find reviewers. But I, I don't ever remember coming across Norwich University. Tell us something about that campus. Well, Norwich is a, it, it's kind of a unique place. We are in Vermont, just right in the center of Vermont, right in the, the middle of the Green Mountains up here. Um, Norwich is the oldest private military college in the country. Uh, it was established in 1819, and we offer bachelor's and master's degrees here. Um, to a mix of students, about 75% of our students are in a corps of cadets, and about a quarter of students are more traditional civilian students um, on campus. But um, we commission students every year into all the branches of the military. So we send people into the Army, the Air Force, Marines, and Navy. We even get a couple into the Coast Guard every year. Uh, ROTC was invented here at Norwich. So there's a, there's a strong kind of military flavor um, to the place. But in general, I find about half the students um, commission. But I find among all the students just a real sense of public spiritedness and public mindedness. So those that don't go into the military tend to go into other kinds of public service type roles, teaching, law enforcement, government service one way or another. So it's a lovely place to work. The students are just fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm jealous. That sounds very cool. What's your mascot, by the way? 
Oh, our <laughs> the mascot is um, it's Alden Partridge, who was who started oh. Norwich University in 1819. He was uh, he was kicked out of West Point and decided to start his own uh, his own college. Yeah. Uh, and he's our mascot. I guess there we have, you know, more resistance to authority. Yeah. In our theme here. You landed off in that place there. And you're, you're somebody who studies this thing, the whole resistance and the Reformation yes. and that kind of stuff. How did you personally come to take an interest in the history of the Reformation? Well, you know, I've always been interested in how faith translates into practice. So having strong beliefs, what does that make people do? That's something that's always been of interest to me, and I, I feel like everyone in this day and age should really study the Reformation, because the issues in the early Reformation are many of the issues that we're dealing with today. Um, you know, it, it, when you look around the world, you know, faith motivates people to do humane acts, large and small, um, but it also motivates people to do abhorrent things, um, and we're trying to make sense of how that can happen, and I think looking at the Reformation and the kinds of things that happen around the Reformation is, is one maybe picture into um, that kind of thing. The Reformation also um, led to religious diversity in the West. Um, you know, it was Christendom. Everyone was kind of the same religion with a few Jews kind of scattered around place to place. But after the Reformation, you really get religious diversity, and we're living in, a, in an era of religious diversity and trying to figure out how to make sense of living with our neighbors who are not like ourselves. And uh, I think the Reformation offers some really interesting insights into that as well. Very cool. You are, are so enthusiastic about this stuff, you decided to organize a colloquium on, on the topic of the 95 Thesis, and it was called Liberty and Authority, and you did this with the Liberty Fund. What, what motivated you to do that, and, and was it a big uh, hassle to organize it, or what? Oh, no, it was very fun. Uh, but, I, you know, I had been long thinking about, the, especially now that we're all thinking about the 95 Theses in the past couple of years, really thinking about them and their relationship to authority. Um, you know, in the Theses, Luther's challenging the authority of the Church. He's challenging the authority of the Pope, challenging tradition. And yet, just a few years after the Theses come out, people start to challenge him. You know, he kind of sets up the scriptures as, as an authority, and then people start to challenge his interpretation of the scriptures, and they start to challenge him directly. So it kind of turns back around on him. And I just think it's fascinating to think about this process, um, and just to think in terms of, of authority and their relationship to the things that are happening between 1517 and, you know, 1525, 1530. But you actually take the study of this back further. So in the colloquium that you organized for the Liberty Fund, you actually have a set of, I think it was five or six readings or uh, uh, different sections, and people would sit down and read and, and talk about this stuff. And you take this back uh, several hundred years, because the mm -hmm. Protestant Reformation at its most general level was about spiritual authority, who who essentially exercises control over one's salvation. And you, you notice that this goes back in history. These themes didn't just pop up in 1517. So you started out with uh, the colloquium with three readings about papal authority that cover about 200 or so years leading up to 1517. And these include Pope Gregory VII's uh, I'm going to massacre these these Latin words, dictatus papi, papi, mm -hmm. okay, that's pretty good. Uh, that was in 1090. Pope Boniface's 
uh, Bull Unum Sanctum, that's in 1302, and then John of Paris's Treaties on Royal and Papal Power, that was also released in 1302. Why did you choose those three readings, and what do each of those add to the idea of church, papal authority, and liberty? Well, Luther wasn't the first one to ask questions about what kind of authority the Church had, uh, particularly as it relates to secular authority and the authority that the kings had. So both Gregory and Boniface are trying to make a case that spiritual authority is really supreme over the kings. And, you know, when you read um, the Unum Sanctum or the Dictatus Pape, they're kind of more of a wish list than a description of the way things really are. But they're trying to say, you know, there's two swords out there. There's the spiritual sword and the secular sword, and when you put them together, the spiritual sword is highest because the Pope works for God. So because the Pope works for God, the Pope is more important than the kings. It's kind of an ongoing negotiation that takes place between these very powerful kings and the popes over the course of the Middle Ages, um, John of Paris is a fascinating guy. He was actually a theologian who was close to Philip the Fair, who was the um, he was the the King of France during the time that Boniface um, put the Unum Sanctum out there, and he kind of pushed back against the Pope and said, you know, yes, the Church has power, but it's soft power. What we would today call soft power. It's verbal power. It's persuasion. The kings have a really important part to play, but they're the ones with the real swords. You know, the church doesn't have any swords. There's no hard power there. So he, he kind of pushes back a little bit and says, you know, there is an important role for secular authorities. Um, but he also, you know, he's not anti-papal. He says, yeah, we've got to be careful not to be too critical of the Pope. We have to be gentle if we don't like what he says. You know, this is no declaration of independence where we can depose a Pope if we don't like them. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see him pushing back just a little bit. So I wanted to set the 95 Theses in a longer tradition of asking questions about the Church, really pushing what the limits of the Church's power and authority were. I, I have to ask this, because historians have all these like really neat ideas or uh, pieces of information about stuff. I've, I've always been fascinated about Boniface. That's a really strange <laughs> name. Who, who is, names their it? kid? Well, I guess they didn't name their kid Boniface, but he chose this name to be Pope. Do you know anything about the names? And, and also this guy, John of Paris. Is, he didn't have right. a last name. He was just of Paris. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he's known as. <laughs> okay. Um, he, does, he does have a full name, although I'd have to look it up to be able to tell you what it is. I know about, I know about Boniface. Um, Boniface was actually a saint in the 8th century. Who uh, he was from England, and he went to try to convert the querulous Germans, and that was martyred, I think, in 755. So when Pope Boniface came into the papacy, um, you know, when you accede to Pope, you can choose the name by which you you want to be known, and he wanted to be known as Boniface. I don't know why he made that choice, but of all the saints and all the names and all the ideas he could have drawn from, it was Saint Boniface that that he found um, most inspiring. I, I have a, a feeling that Boniface is going to make a big comeback in naming pretty soon as the <laughs> Catholic Church <laughs> strikes back at the Counter-Reformation <laughs> stuff. We need to name our kids Boniface. All those querulous Germans. And querulous. I love that word, too. Querulous, right? Um, <laughs> very, very good word. I always learn good words from people who study the um, Protestant Reformation. As you mentioned, religious <laughs> right. diversity before. One of my good friends and colleagues, Steve Pfaff, who's also in this Protestant Reformation series, loves the word fissiparius to describe. Describe mm-hmm. um, 
the uh, plurality of religions that came out after the religion. So Protestantism, mm-hmm. very fissiparious. Okay, so Martin Luther, he was not the first Christian to challenge the Vatican's authority. There were many proto-Protestants who came before him, including two additional ones that you include in your next section in this colloquium, and that was Jan Hus's The Church and Savonarola's Letters to and from Pope Alexander VI. Why were those two writings important enough to be talking about them several centuries later? And um, why didn't each of these catch fire the way that Luther's writings did? Yeah, I think those are interesting questions. So the, the challenges to the authority of the, of the Pope and the Church, it came from the secular side, which we've talked about, but also there were religious challenges before Luther. Um, I could have added other readings to this list. John Wycliffe is one of my favorites. And, you know, many of the people in the Middle Ages that we've labeled heretics actually had some really interesting alternate ideas themselves that, that we could explore. But um, I think, you know, the key thing with, with Jan Hus and, and John Wycliffe in particular, you know, they were making an intellectual appeal. So as they were thinking about how do we reform the church, they're making intellectual arguments, they're writing for a scholarly audience, uh, John Wycliffe uh, was a professor at Oxford University, and Jan Hus was the president of the Charles University in Prague. Um, and they're writing in Latin. Um, and they're appealing to a, a really kind of a very narrow audience in some ways, whereas, you know, when Luther comes along, Luther's writing in the vernacular, he, and he makes a real visceral appeal. He's writing to regular folks. He's not trying to make, you know, a, a, a big intellectual argument He's, he's hitting people in the gut, and I think that's one of the reasons why he ends up being so successful, whereas some of these other earlier reformers weren't successful. There's also the issue of the printing press, um, which, you know, famously, Luther was great at the printing press. He was the first, um, you know, sort of uh, social media star, I guess you could say. Like, he, his, paint, his uh, pamphlets went viral. They always had these great images on them. Um, and they just went everywhere. And he tapped into that in a way that the others didn't. Uh, John Wycliffe, of course, um, lived in the 14th century before the printing press. Jan Hus could have used the printing press and maybe would have if he had lived a little longer. He was um, killed going back from the uh, Council of Constance, which he had gone to to explain his position. Yeah, I don't know if you, you noticed, but I said I was wondering why his writings didn't catch fire uh, in yeah. part because he caught fire. He caught, that's true. Yeah. That's true. You know, but, you know, he was a pretty old man at that point and had been writing for a long time. I, I think he just didn't see where this new technology could take him, whereas Luther was right on top of that new technology. And everyone who came after Luther, they recognized that you get the printing press, you get stuff out there. Once it's printed, once it's making its way around, there's nothing anybody can do to stop it. You know, it's just like putting stuff out on the Internet. I remind my students, mm-hmm. it never goes away. You yeah. can't get all those pamphlets back. They're going to be out there. So, um, But some of your yeah, students are probably thinking that, oh, but that's okay, because 500 years from now they'll be celebrating me in a podcast. <laughs> I don't know. That's what I think. If only that were the case. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess we can hope. So. What, what was uh, Hus's primary arguments in the document that you include in this colloquium, the church? You mentioned they're writing for a, a much narrower audience, but uh, it, are there similar issues that Luther is going to bring up? Are they different? What are the issues he's concerned about? There will be similar issues. 
um, in some ways, but they're, he's talking about it on such a different level. So he's talking about um, the limits of what it is that the Pope can do in terms of ensuring salvation and justification, um, starting to suggest that maybe the Pope doesn't have the power to remit sin, which is something that, that Luther will eventually take up a bit later, um, but writing it in such a different way. And, you know, just writing it for someone who is a theologian, who has that background, um, and can follow really what, what are fairly esoteric arguments. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend Jan Hus for, you know, for a first-time reader of theology, whereas Luther just, just hits you right where you live yeah. and, and speaks in a really direct way, and, and, and thus is more accessible, you know, just more easy to understand. And who is this guy, Savonarola? Oh, Savonarola, yes. yeah. Oh, he's a fascinating guy who's, he's criticizing the church. Well, I suppose they're all criticizing the church from within the church, but Savonarola was a preacher in Florence um, who didn't, I guess, kind of like, he makes it a little bit of a different appeal. He, he uh, seems to feel like the church is not um, pure enough, and so he's going to purify the church in in Florence, and then it will kind of make its way down. So his challenges to the Pope aren't so much intellectual challenges as really challenging authority in a very real way. You know, I'm in charge in Florence. We're going to do what I say. I don't want to listen to you, Pope Alexander, and what you think, because I, he actually claimed, you know, God has spoken to me and said this is the way to do it. So for a while there, uh, Florence wasn't a very fun place to live. He, he burned all the playing cards and quite a bit of art and all kinds of other things on the bonfire of the vanities, famously out in the, the piazza, um, and then was himself burned in that same place a few years later. <laughs> Once uh, Florence decided they really kind of liked their vanities, you know, they liked all that art and all those playing cards and things like that. So he went down in flames as well before his ideas could really catch hold. It's interesting that you included letters to and from uh, Pope Alexander VI. Uh, I mean, to have a Pope write back to you is pretty, pretty cool, but I guess they didn't have a lot to do back then because there wasn't much on TV. But, you know, so Alexander's writing back. What did Alexander write back? Did he said, Savonarola, chill out on the playing cards, would you? That's exactly it. Savonarola, just calm down. (laughs) Savonarola, you're not in charge of the church. Stop telling me what to do. One of the things that's different in that case is these are letters going from Rome to Florence, which is really not very far away. Yeah. Now, Jan Hus is all the way out in Bohemia. You know, he's in Prague. That's really far away. That's right on the outskirts of, of Christianity. So it's a little harder for the Pope to keep him under control, or even, you know, Luther out in Wittenberg. I mean, nobody goes all the way out to Wittenberg. It was, it was considered to be on the edge of civilization. So... The, the Reformation was able to kind of grow out there further away from Rome, whereas Savonarola being in Florence, it was a little easier for the Pope to kind of like yank his chain. Yeah. Get which, him under control, or attempt to get him under control. Which is probably why we don't hear as much about him as we do Martin Luther. We, we don't, but there's such a diversity of challenges to the Church, and that's why I wanted to include him and why I talk about him a lot. And, and there's, you know, these intellectual challenges. You know, there's also... Um, just kind of regular folks. Um, one of my favorite stories is about the drummer of Nicholashausen, this kind of out-of-work, uh, you know, guy who, you know, made his living by busking, who suddenly has a, ver- a, a vision of the Virgin Mary and feels called on to preach and starts preaching 
actually very similarly to Savonarola, you know, the vanities and the clothes and the pointed shoes, and we need to purify the church, and got this great following, completely uneducated guy who, who wrote nothing, um, but also just was a reformer in his own way and got a great following until he also uh, was burned at the stake. Um, those challenges to the authority of... Uh, I think it was the Archbishop of Würzburg didn't didn't go well for him. Once he started calling for armed insurrection against the Archbishop, um, his life was not long after that. That'll do but it. People at, at all levels, you know, uneducated buskers, all the way up to the president of the Charles University in Prague, making different appeals and appealing to different groups of people, and yet a whole diversity of questions out there about, is this the way the church should be run? Is, you know, is the Pope doing what he should be doing? Hmm. So what is a busker? You mentioned that term, busker. Oh, oh, he he uh, he went around playing the flute and the as far as we can tell, the flute and the drums and, yeah. and just having people give him money, you okay. know, like you would see in the subway. In New okay. City or something. Yeah, very cool. Oh. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, well, they, those folks are fascinating. I love those folks. Yeah. Anyways, so we got Hoos, we got Savonarola, we got a bunch of other people's. This drummer guy, we're all protesting, but it's Luther that really as you say, punches everybody in the gut in the vernacular and gets things rolling here. So in the third section of your colloquium readings, you finally get to Luther's 95 Theses. You set that up, and that's what we want to be talking about here. We know that much of what provoked Luther was the sale of indulgences, and we've talked uh, with previous guests about that before here. But you point out that there are some general themes about church authority that are woven throughout the 95 Theses. What are these? Well, there's themes about all kinds of different things. In the, in the theses. You can't understand the theses as any kind of systematic theology. Um, Luther was not a systematic theologian. He was a guy who got mad and lashed out. <laughs> That's kind of the way that he did things. Um, and, it, you know, it's always a little surprising. I, I love teaching the 95 theses to students because their response is always, this is the thing that did it? Like, this split Christianity? Because it's when you read it, it's not all that radical, uh, or it doesn't appear to be, um, you know, on the beginning. It's, uh, there's a surprising lack of scriptural references. I mean, you would think for somebody who was challenging the, the church, you would, you would refer to scripture. He almost never does. He does in a few places obliquely. So if you know, you know, Paul's letter to the Romans, you might recognize some things. But, but there's none of that kind of, like, appeal to scripture. It's, absolutely a fascinating document just in its, I don't even know how to describe it, it's so ordinary. Yeah, um, when I... And it's so non-radical on the face of things. One of the things that surprised me about it, and I went to take a look at it again um, when I was setting up for this podcast, was that it, it really reads like the Declaration of Independence. A lot of <laughs> folks think of the Declaration of Independence as this huge monumental you know, thesis about the origins of liberty and what it needs, and there's a little bit of that in the first couple paragraphs, but then after you get that, it's just a list of gripes. You know, we, we don't want this, that, the other thing. We're really upset with this. Would you get rid of that tax and this thing and blah, right, blah, blah. Right. And it's the same thing with the 95 Theses. Each of these mm -hmm. 95 Theses just reads about a sentence, maybe two sentences at most, which mm -hmm. is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, they're not long. The, and part of that comes from how they were meant to be used. So the thing that you do for fun if you live in Wittenberg, which is a tiny little town, I mean, they had a university, but it was a university with, you know, like there were six professors. 
um, in this, at this tiny little town right on the edge of civilization. Uh, so what they would do for fun, if you're a theologian or a professor at the university, is you would get around, get some food, get some drink, and talk about principles of, of theology. So these 95 theses were set out to be things that you could sit around, eat together, drink together, and discuss. So the idea was to go piece by piece and discuss them with your other theologian buddies. And, I, and that, I think, is what Luther had planned. I don't think Luther had, honestly, I really don't think he had any vision of this blowing up the way it did. I think he was as surprised as anyone uh, when a printer got a hold of a copy, and, and it's not clear exactly how that happened, but a printer got a hold of a copy, started printing it, and all of a sudden it went from being discussions among a bunch of theologians, Luther and his friends, to discussions on street corners, um, you know, the, the, someone took a copy to the next town over and then a printer printed it there. This was long before copyright um, started being translated into other languages. It was all over Germany in two weeks and all over Europe within a month. I mean, from Scotland to Italy, you could see the 95 theses. Anyway, um, so the idea of, of this was that you were supposed to sit down and discuss each one individually. So if you look at the first one, for example, um, it reads fairly simply, um, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of penitence. So the idea is you would sit around and say, is this true? Is the whole life of believers supposed to be a life of penitence? And most likely, we'll all agree that that, that is the case. And then you move on to number two. The word cannot be properly understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, i.e. confession and satisfaction, as administered by the clergy. So... Um, in that one, you can see that, you know, that's a little bit more complicated. Well, is there supposed to be a sacrament of confession and satisfaction? Does it have to be administered by the clergy? That's when you can start really getting some discussion. And then you'd move on to number three and number four. I think by the time you got to, the, to 95, you'd probably be pretty tired. Yeah. Uh, or pretty drunk, <laughs> as the case might be. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's the way that this was supposed to be read. And so the unusual form of the theses comes from that, you know, the, the way that they did that. Yeah, let's just say something controversial, one pithy sentence, and start everything rolling. Much like a Liberty Fund conference, yeah. actually. It is, it is much like that. Although... You know, it's interesting because, again, not all of these theses are controversial. And some of them even seem to uphold the authority of um, the Pope, even kind of support the Pope's position. Um, number 38, just as an example, um, reads, um, The Pope's remission and dispensation are in no way to be despised, for, as already said, they proclaim the divine remission. So if you take that on its face value, it seems to support the position of the Pope. Maybe the Pope really does have authority. So I think that's one of the things that becomes confusing about reading this, is you say, well, where's Luther in this? What does he, what does he believe? Sometimes it's clear. Other times you kind of say, well, does he really think this? Or is he just throwing this out like as a devil's advocate argument? Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you about the general theme of, of liberty, because this becomes the, the topic of the colloquium that you had with Liberty mm -hmm. Fund. And I, you could see there in the second thesis, he starts saying, well, you know, do we really have to have the sacrament of confession done by a priest? Whoa, mm -hmm. that hits the authority all of a sudden, right? That's yeah. almost, uh, almost like saying that we can handle uh, cleaning up the lake without any EPA administrators. 
And right. the EPA goes, whoa, 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 the experts here, you <laughs> can't do that. Right, um, exactly. So is, is that part of, I mean, does this set a bigger theme of, of liberty and, and even broaden this further? Is this um, a, a first baby step toward the Enlightenment thinking about liberty in Europe at the time? Well, that argument has been made that, um, that the Enlightenment and, and you know, even political liberty comes from the things that were started by this document. I actually think this document exists because these things were already in place. Um, the Holy Roman Empire was, was kind of a mess. You know, it was all kinds of different principalities, um, free imperial cities that were essentially self-governing, um, territorial states that were essentially self-governing, so politically very decentralized. It was very difficult for the Holy Roman Emperor to really have any kind of real authority over everyone. Um, and, and there is a, a real sense of independence. I mean, if we think about, especially the eastern part of the Holy Roman Empire, where, where Luther lived, it was like the Wild West. I mean, just, it, was, it was very far away from, from real authority, especially church authority. So you could see, you could say these things, you could think these things. There was a real atmosphere of, of freedom in some ways. So I would actually kind of put it on its head. I would say because of the political situation and because there was a sense of self-governing and a sense of freedom that was already there, people could start to ask these kinds of questions and say these kinds of things. Are there any other points in the 95 theses that jump out that really attack church authority that got everybody discussing at the colloquium? There, there are quite a few. Um, you know, and some of them are, you know, some of them are theological points, um, and some of them are just really practical. Uh, and, and that's another thing that's really fascinating is the way that you get both of those things happening at the same time. Um, so, let's see, I, I, if on a theological point of view, his attack on the doctrine of purgatory is fascinating. And he gets to that quite early in the theses. I would say um, thesis 13 through thesis 16, he's really questioning the doctrine of purgatory. Um, you know, he says here essentially in 13, death puts an end to all the claims of the church. Here he's obliquely referring to, to Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, the dying are already dead to the canon laws. Why are we taking earthly laws, the canon laws, and applying them to people in purgatory? That doesn't make any sense. And he really starts to question whether the fundamental doctrine of the church is, is even exists. Um, and so that, that's a theological attack on the authority of the church that I think is really, really, really interesting. But it's also interesting to read into it because he starts to say, you know, if purgatory is anything, it's fear. And Luther himself was famously terrified of hell and terrified that he wouldn't himself be saved. Um, and actually, in, in Thesis 30, you can almost see him bearing his soul here. He says, no one is sure of the reality of his own contrition, much less of receiving plenary forgiveness. He himself didn't know if he could be saved. And you can see just kind of the, the potential for just terror and despair coming out here. So it's interesting that he's then questioning the doctrine of purgatory because you can't flunk purgatory. Like, you're eventually going to go in the right direction. Eventually you'll mm -hmm. make your way into heaven. So in some ways it's a very comforting doctrine, the idea that there is a purgatory. Um, so interesting that, that the person who was so afraid of hell 
would also attack purgatory, which he does here yeah, it, in, a, in a really interesting way. Number 13 is, is rather interesting, too, because he says oh, when yeah. church authority ends at death, right? And at he puts you in the casket and drop yeah. you in the ground. Um, that's it, church. Mm-hmm. That, that really hits at the, um, the indulgences because you know, initially indulgences where if you're living, you need to do some good works and you know, mm-hmm. you will, will accept cash and major credit cards. Uh, but you know, it, it starts to extend to, you, you, you know, Uncle Floyd, he didn't quite uh, exactly. repent by the time he died. So now's your chance to get him out. But he's saying exactly. you can't do that, right? Yeah. Well, you know, indulgences had a, they did have a theological basis. They, they, they go back long before the Reformation. They kind of came around, or at least became popular during the Crusades, when the Pope had to have some way of explaining how if you go on crusade, you can make your way into heaven. And so he kind of talked about, you know, it's as though there's a spiritual bank account with all of the extra excess good works that have been done by Jesus and the saints. And, you know, they, they did way more than they had to do to get into heaven. So there's this theoretical bank account with all this extra good works in it that could be applied if you went on crusade or did something like that. The difference is when the popes at the end of the 15th century start saying, we can sell this stuff, and then if we sell it, we can put all this money into paying artists and building St. Peter's. And quite frankly, I'm glad they did, because I love that stuff. St. Peter's is absolutely amazing, and the art is wonderful. But I can see how someone like Luther um, might get a little bit upset about that. And he actually talks about, um, he, he not only kind of attacks indulgences, you know, for their efficacy, he says, oh, I don't, you know, these things don't really work. Um, in 36, he says, look, if you're truly repentant, you don't need an indulgence. And then he goes down 42, 43, 44. He says, you know, really what we should be preaching is not that people should buy indulgences. We really should be preaching that they should do good works. I mean, isn't that the thing that gets you into heaven? But as he gets a little bit later on, he starts talking about the financial piece. Um, and I think my my among my very favorite of these theses are 27 and 28, where he just straight out says, there's no divine authority for preaching that the soul flies out of purgatory immediately as the money clinks into the bottom of the chest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just love that. You know, he's, he, like I said, he hits you where you live, you know, and that image is so wonderful. And 28, he says, it's certainly possible that when the money clinks in the bottom of the chest, avarice and greed increase. But when the church offers intercession, it all depends on the will of God. So, yeah, the money clink in the bottom, in the bottom yeah. of the chest is doing something, but, you know, it's, I'm not sure it's getting souls out of purgatory. I don't think really that's what things are about. He, he definitely um, really hits you with the vernacular. I mean, it's just the guy talking yeah. almost like in a bar. He's losing any kind of highfalutin Latin uh, mm-hmm. academic language and just comes out and says yeah. it, which is kind of neat. Are there any other themes in the 95 Theses that might deal or extend to secular authority, or did people kind of read that into it and extend it beyond them? Well, you know, Luther was a fan of secular authority. Um, He did not mean to specifically attack the authority of the the kings and princes, and and in fact, later on, appeals to the kings and princes, which we can talk about. Um, but there are a few things Luther doesn't like that you can see showing up in the 95 Theses. And one of the things that's interesting about Luther is he had a profound distrust of capitalism and bankers. So you, and, you know, and of course the, the, um, the Pope at the time, Leo X, was a Medici coming from a banking family. 
um, that the Fugger and Velser families are, are banking families that are a little bit closer to home. So there's jabs at bankers and jabs at money kind of coming throughout the theses um, in an interesting way uh, where he talks about money, he talks about the, the importance of, of not squandering your money on indulgences. And then uh, in, 50, in 51, he says, Christians should be taught that the Pope would, should be willing, if, uh, as he ought, if necessity sh- should arise, to sell the Church of St. Peter and give his own money to many of those whom the pardon merchants conjure money. So here he's uh, talking about um, the pardon merchants, of course, being um, the indulgent sellers, and those who uh, conjure money being usurers, uh, all of those banking families, the Medici, the, the Fugger, and, and various other bankers. So, and, and his kind of anti-capitalist stuff will also get developed later. He just was very unsure about money lending and banking families and this kind of proto-capitalism. So, uh, so he talks about that uh, a lot in here. He also attacks the, the wealth of the Pope toward the end. And some of my other favorites are when we get up into the 80s and you can tell that Luther's getting tired mm-hmm. <laughs> because the gloves come off toward the end. And uh, in 82, it's wonderful. He asked the, the, just the kind of essential question. He says, why doesn't the Pope liberate everyone from purgatory for the sake of love? You know, if he really had access to this spiritual bank account of good works, why doesn't he just spring everybody out of purgatory? Uh, so that would be morally best. But, he, but instead he redeems souls for money, which is the most perishable thing, and he does it to build St. Peter's Church, which is a minor purpose. Um, and he gets back to that again in 86. Since the Pope's income today is larger than that of the wealthiest of wealthy men, why doesn't he build St. Peter with his own money rather than on the backs of indigent believers? And those are great questions, I think. Those are, it's hard for the Pope to respond to that kind of stuff. And there are themes that you even hear resonating today. You know, why doesn't uh, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett use all their money to distribute and eliminate yeah. poverty rather than lecturing us on that and you know, <laughs> more taxes or whatever? He's asking that question. Yeah. You, you know? mentioned that it seems like by the 80s he's starting to, or the thesis number 80 and above, mm-hmm. that he's starting to get tired and you can just see him getting a little yeah. bit more punchy or perhaps punch drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ends at 95. I, I thought, I'm, and one of my things is, why didn't you just go for that round 100? Come on, you can crank yeah. out five more, man. <laughs> did did he write know. these all at once? Do we know anything about that? Was it a period uh, of months or what? We, we don't know much about his process um, any more than we know about, you know, did he actually nail them to the door? Did he not? How did they get to the printer in the first place? Uh, that stuff we don't know. He really kind of starts uh, it winds up around 90. I mean, the last the last five, he's just clearing his throat. Um, and I don't know. Maybe he intended to go to 100 and just ran out of things to say or, <laughs> you know, got yeah. tired. I don't know. I don't know why he went to 95. There's nothing magic about that number, I don't think. No, I, know, I, I don't think so. But that's how I kind of write as well, too. Just yeah. keep writing until I get exa- uh, exhausted. Now, yeah, I think we can identify with that. <laughs> One thing that you also include in the the two sections that you deal specifically with the 95 Theses is Pope Leo's response to this. And he comes up with 41 points instead of 95. Mm-hmm. So he kind of gets exhausted a little bit earlier. But uh, <laughs> um, what, what what is the gist of Leo X's response to all this? Well, I, I think, uh, unfortunately... Um, Leo doesn't respond point by point. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. You know, this is why you're wrong. 
Instead, Leo, and actually probably not Leo, probably his theologians wrote this for him, um, he just kind of goes through and says, you know, Luther, you're wrong. Um, and, and, and we think you're a bad person. And he kind of comes up with his, his 40 separate reasons. So um, I thought it was important to include that. I wanted to have the response from, from the Pope to all of this. But, um, you know, the Pope sort of says, sit down and shut up and, and don't worry about it. I don't think the Pope had any concept of the way these 95 theses were going to blow up any more than Luther himself did. I think they were both surprised by what happened. And, you know, maybe had he realized what was going to happen, he might have uh, come up with a more robust response to the specifics of what Luther was claiming. Yeah. Instead, it's mostly a lot of name-calling. Of course, you know, the 95 Theses are sort of a lot of name-calling yeah. against the Pope, too. Yep. A lot of them are very personal. Uh, I mean, there's some questioning the authority of the papacy, but especially toward the end, it's really just, we don't like you, Leo. Mm-hmm. We think you're a terrible Pope. Yeah, so. which, again, likens it to the Declaration of Independence in many ways. There's these, all these very specific gripes in this document that's <laughs> supposed to have, you know, this major philosophical foundation to it, but it's just, right. uh, we're, we're kind of pissed off about this stuff. So it does blow up, and we know from previous podcasts with Marion Goldman, Steve Pfaff, and Rob Sorensen that Luther was a prolific writer, so he yeah. continues to blow things up in, in many ways. He didn't stop at the 95 Thesis. You also include in the colloquium that you organized a couple other Luther's writings, and the important ones here are Luther's uh, writing to the Christian nobility of the German nation and the freedom of of a Christian, those two different readings there. And this is in part response to something known as the Peasant War, and I, I can imagine Luther starting to go, ooh, what did I just do here? Let's uh, let's start mm-hmm. to think through this a little bit. Give us a sense of, of what happens initially, this, this uprising with the peasants, and what uh, Luther is saying in all these writings. Sure. Well, you kind of have to see the trajectory of Luther's early career. So the 95 Theses come out, I think surprises him as much as it surprises everybody else just how these things take off. And of course, the, the first to push back are these indulgence sellers who see, you know, they see their income dropping off significantly because they, they took their cut, uh, the Duke of Saxony took his cut, and then the rest got sent to Rome. So they see their income going down. They're upset. So they start challenging him. And Luther's that guy. We all have friends like this that if you challenge them on a point, they come back swinging. And Luther was that guy. Once you started pushing him, he pushed back harder. So he starts out maybe not so radical, you know, asking some questions, putting some ideas out there. But once he starts getting pushed by Johann Tetzel, the the local Dominican indulgence seller, and then later on by Johannes Eck and then by others, he really starts pushing back. And that's where you start to see him getting more and more radical and really kind of breaking with the church. The church doesn't excommunicate him until 1520, and and he he knows it's happening. I mean, you don't keep these kinds of things secret. So we actually um, met the papal representative there in Wittenberg. He had a bonfire ready to go so he could throw the bull of excommunication on the bonfire dramatically and uh, declare the Pope an Antichrist, and there's kind of no going back from there. Yep, yep. But it was was not, not long after that that he published to the Christian nobility of the German nation, where he's making an appeal to secular princes. Like, hey, guys, he's think, you know, the princes around him in the Holy Roman Empire, who are pretty independent and accustomed to being independent and don't like people telling them what to do, whether it's the Holy Roman Emperor or the Pope, and saying, hey, you guys should be on my side in this. You know, thing, things, aren't, things aren't so great. Um, 
maybe we should be pushing back against this kind of authority. And if we do, maybe that gives you just a little more power. So he's appealing to them um, to kind of be on his side in this. I think he recognizes that he's going to need some allies. And so that's where that comes from. The freedom of a Christian is a fascinating document because of Luther's sense of freedom. He doesn't mean freedom in quite the same way we do. And, and actually, you know, his, his notion of, of free will and, you know, versus Erasmus is a whole other fascinating conversation. But he really sees freedom as being free from fear, not necessarily being free to act on your own. Um, he doesn't see the will as having freedom. If you have grace, you can act. If you don't have grace, you're constrained. Um, even if you do have grace, you're constrained to act in good ways. So he doesn't see freedom the way that we tend to think about freedom. But, you know, these come out, um, you know, they spread very widely. They start to spark all kinds of other conversations. Uh, he, he famously stands up to, um, to all of the princes of the church and to uh, Charles V at the Diet of Worms and says, here I stand, I can do no other, I will not recant. And, uh, and thereafter has to go into hiding so that he doesn't end up in the same situation Jan Hus ended up in. And while he's in hiding, he writes uh, a translation of the New Testament. And I would argue that that actually is the thing that starts the Reformation. I, that's just me saying it. But once he gets the translation of the New Testament out there and everyone can read it, that means everybody can have their own opinions about it. And that surprised him. I think he thought people would read the Bible and come to the same conclusions that he did. And as you and I both know, you read the Bible, everybody's going to see it slightly differently. He was surprised by that. He, I think, naively believed everyone um, would follow him. But they didn't. And that's some of the things that start leading to people coming up with their own explanations for things and using his exhortation to read the Bible for yourself and to question the teachings of the church, you know, people start reading the Bible and start questioning all kinds of things, including, you know, the, the rights of feudalism, the rights of their landlords, whether there should be kings at all. And when you've got a population of peasants that have been downtrodden you know, for so many years, who've been under the thumb of feudalism, you get a few radical preachers running through there with the Bible saying, Maybe you should stand up and fight. <laughs> Maybe priesthood of all believers, if we're all equal before God, then your landlord is no more important than, than you are. Um, and that's going to spark a peasant's revolt. What, what happens in this peasant revolt? Well, it's actually a whole series of revolts, uh, mostly in the eastern and southern parts of Germany. Um, they tended to be in rural areas, um, people literally just coming out with pitchforks, um, and starting to fight against their landlords. They would go in, they would burn documents, sometimes they would burn houses, they were demanding. There's a, a, there's a, a series of um, documents out there on the demands of the peasants. Uh, and they demanded, you know, we want the tithes to stay in our area. We don't want anything going to Rome. Um, you know, we want to be able to choose our own pastor. You know, kind of typical what you would think was the Reformation stuff. But then they're also saying, we want to be able to cut our own wood in the forest. We want to be able to fish. Um, you know, we don't want to have you imposing all these dues on us. We don't want to have to pay death taxes. So for them, the religious um, demands are all mixed up in all these other kinds of political demands. And they looked to Luther for inspiration and said, well, you know, you're the guy who started us down this path, and they expected to get support from him, and they did not. 
Um, he was very upset with the things that they said, wrote a series of pamphlets about, okay, you guys, I didn't mean that you should question secular authority, and everybody needs to, you know, we got to have order here. Um, and finally culminating in uh, a pamphlet titled, just in case you want to know what he thinks, Against the Robbing and Murdering Hordes of Peasants. Uh, again, great title. Words. Yeah, that's a yeah, great title. Isn't it great? Yeah. Um, so the peasant revolts were put down. They started in about 1524. They were put down by 1525. Um, Luther, of course, being very much against it, writing against the leaders of the peasants' revolts, many of whom were theologians and former priests, people that he knew, people like Thomas Munzer, um, who was who was killed in battle. And interestingly, after that, the Reformation does not take hold in rural areas. The Reformation after that becomes an urban phenomenon. So to the extent that it survives, it survives in cities. To this day, rural Germany is very Catholic. Fascinating. And we've, we've talked with Stephen Pfaff about that before and how it spreads in mm-hmm. trade networks and concentrated yes. in cities as well. Absolutely. So we'll point people back to that one. One of the other readings that you include in this is writings back and forth between Luther and Erasmus. And this, this must have been surprising mm-hmm. to him, too, because, again, he says, well, everybody reads what I read, and, every, and <laughs> you'll figure out what I, you know, what I know. Every, I, I've got it right. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't happen yeah. that way. Yeah, Luther famously had a hard time getting along with people. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he, he made many enemies and lost many friends. And Erasmus was one of those guys who just kind of didn't get Luther. He couldn't figure out, you know, what Luther's problem was. Um, and, and, and he was frustrated that people would lump him together with Luther because Erasmus was making his own criticisms of the church and, you know, saying there need to be reforms and things like he doesn't go so far as to actually break with the church. There's no question of excommunication. He never goes as far as Luther does. So he gets really frustrated that he gets lumped together with Luther um, by a lot of people in the age. So he spends a lot of time kind of distancing himself from that crazy guy out in, in Wittenberg. And, and actually they engage in a, a number of interesting dialogues between the two of them, the most interesting being about the nature of free will. Are we truly free to act for ourselves or not? And Luther said no. Um, and, and Erasmus gave much more freedom to uh, the individual will. It's a, it's a fascinating exchange. But, yeah, Luther, uh, Luther and Erasmus did not like each other. And uh, although they corresponded, they did not agree on very much. I want to finish off our discussion here with a couple uh, questions that look forward into Europe's history, and I specifically start with the the to the Christian nobility of the German nation writing that he does. Uh, some people have argued that this is the first step toward Europe's secularization. What, what's your read on that? I think there's a good case to be made for that. When he starts to say to secular authorities, it's time to stand up um, and it, and and take your rightful place. And, you know, the church has its place, but, you know, it's, it's your job to make sure that the, you know, that the gospel is being followed the way that it should be. I think that's, that becomes a theoretical foundation for something that starts to happen in reality, and that's the transfer of, um, transfer of roles or uh, jobs, I guess, really, from the church to secular authorities. I mean, once you get an area that goes Protestant, you no longer have the Catholic Church in there doing poor relief and, you know, administering marriage. And, I mean, there's so many things, you know, taking care of orphans, so many things that the Church did 
and once the church is gone, somebody's still got to do that. You still have poor people, even if you decide you want to be a, a Calvinist or a Lutheran. You, you still got poor people in your town. So the secular government would take over those responsibilities. And when you do that, of course, the size of government is going to grow, and you start to need to have offices you know, that can do various things and office holders. I, I think there's a case to be made that the growth of the bureaucratic state starts with these areas that go Protestant that suddenly look around and say, what are we going to do about the orphans? Somebody's got to build an orphanage. Somebody's got to figure out how to license our beggars. You know, somebody's got to be in charge of marriage. We're going to have to do that as a Department of State. So, so I think we can make a case for that. I, I think maybe even more importantly, when the, Reform, the Reformation introduces diversity into the European landscape in a way that had never been there before. So we also have... European, you know, heads of state having to figure out, well, how do we deal with diversity? We've got people that have different opinions, different points of view here. How do we do this? So what should the role of the state be to maintain order but allow people, you know, maybe intellectual freedom? So these questions start to come up for the first time because of the Reformation um, and a need for toleration and, a, and an acknowledgement somehow that everybody has their own internal life and a right to their own internal positions. And I, I think that's probably where, you know, the, the Enlightenment will pick up a lot of these ideas and, and that kind of thing going forward. So I think we can look around the world that we see around us and see a lot of things that can be traced back to the Reformation and the upheavals of the Reformation, which can be traced right back to Luther's 95 Theses, you know, deciding to sit around and talk about the problem of indulgences with all of his friends in Wittenberg. Let me ask a broader question on this, and I like to spring this one on historians. It's the old what-if question, <laughs> because it, it, it makes us think about the role of the individual person, the great person in history, versus the structural conditions that surround it. Would Europe and world history have looked any different if it were not for Luther? Would all of this stuff come about maybe 50 or 60 years later, or, or was Luther really, really a, a pivotal person in history? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, gosh, it, it, my sense of things is something was waiting to happen. And if it hadn't been Luther, it would have been someone. The printing press was right there. It was already starting to be used. Erasmus was using it. Um, I think that some pretty serious reforms were coming down the pike. Um, now, would they have happened in exactly the same way? I'm not sure. Um, and perhaps the church could have reformed itself without dividing. And if that had been the case, then certainly Europe would look very different. Um, if, the, if the Catholic Church had managed to reform itself without you know, creating all of these break-off groups, um, then I think the church would have retained a lot of power, and the secular authorities would have been a lot less, and there would have been less opportunity, I think, to challenge that power and the power of the church because it, it would have had so much more authority. Um, but my sense of things is the church was not in a good position to reform itself. I, I think people within the church recognized that needed to happen. I don't think they could have done it on their own. So if it wasn't Luther, I think it would have been someone who would have come along. Now, I'm glad it was Luther because he's so much fun to read and so much fun to teach. He's so relatable. Um, he writes, you know, lots and lots of stuff, but, it, but it's wonderful stuff. He, ha he has a fondness for digestive metaphors in particular that my students love. There's just something about his 
kind of populist and, and real and earthy approach to these kinds of questions that make him such a fascinating character, such an interesting person to read. Yeah, he's a personality that really does resonate with me because I kind of have the, the same kind of uh, punchy approach to some intellectual yeah. debates that he does, which oftentimes people stare at me and say, are you really an <laughs> academic? Uh, you can't be. But um, yeah, He was a great thinker, <laughs> but he loved fart jokes. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, what can you do? Uh, he's yeah. great. And there's something on the internet, too. I think it's called the Luther insult generator uh which yes. just plucks things from his his prolific amounts of writing mm-hmm. and they're they're great we'll we'll link to that one as well as a few other I would say uh, he's second only to shakespeare in being able to put together a really good insult that's true but the, yeah, um shakespeare's so hard for me to read in the old english and they don't translate it very often for me but mm-hmm. when they translate the german it, it makes it better to the uh, 20th century or the 21st yeah, century uh, ears here final question for you and I want you to kind of reflect upon your own studies here personally. Has there been anything that you've encountered in your studies of the Reformation and of Luther and of that really made you rethink the way that you look at the world or something that surprised you? Hmm. That's a great question, too. You know, I, I, think if, I think the most profound thing I've gotten out of my studies of, of Lutherans and Catholics and particularly their, their relationship to each other, is just how creative people can be at getting along with their neighbors. And that in general, when you leave people to their own devices, they can come up with great ways to tolerate each other. You know, they figure out how to live together. So long before John Locke is writing his letter on toleration, which we traditionally think about as kind of, you know, sparking as this age of toleration and the Enlightenment, people in practice live together quite happily and make all kinds of accommodations for each other's religious beliefs. Um, and I find that to be wonderful. For me, that, that's kind of a testament to humanity that, you know, think, things change when the government comes in and tells you you have to persecute each other. People are, are quite good at persecuting each other as well. But they're also quite good at being good neighbors to people who believe very differently than they do. And I think that's maybe one of the most profound things that, that's come out of my research in the Reformation. I will give you an amen on that because it is a great <laughs> lesson for contemporary times today. Absolutely. My guest today has been Professor Emily Fisher-Gray. Emily, thanks for being on Research on Religion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Research on Religion. To learn more about today's topic, participate in a discussion about what you've heard, or browse other podcasts, please visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org. And if you like what we're doing, please tell a friend. We'd appreciate the company. See you next week.